0: Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. The premier North Wales one person true crime show that seeks out those cases that may not be as familiar to the listener. Those that are often obscure or long forgotten. Sometimes those that you may even hear and even not believe can be true but they always are. And that I've scoured the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland to bring for your listening. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You might hear his little bell because he's always by me when I do this. Peaks, the true crime enthusi cat, is of course with me as ever. And you folks are you folks, my reason for doing what I do each time around. It's as wonderful as it ever is to have you joining me in the mog here today. Which I thank you kindly for doing so, and it does as ever mean the world and I hope that as the episode reaches you all today, then it finds you and yours all good, all staying safe and all very well. So, and it feels like ages since I've put out a regular show episode, although it's only been a week's break really. But we start as we ever do with the many thanks for the feedback and the comments that I've received concerning the previous episode. My reach into the show's Patreon back catalogue, the episode to kill and kill again an awful tale concerning john robinson and his darkest of deeds so many years apart as i said in the episode that's a tale i can't believe isn't more familiar than it is but there you go at least now there's some sort of document and it's out there in the public record anyway on the subject of Patreon, I have been a bit delayed with getting around to doing this month's bonus episode because, as I do sometimes, I've chopped and changed the subject and I've come up instead with a tale that I found a bit more interesting anyway. They just choose themselves sometimes and that I hope that you do too when it comes out a bit later on this month. Thanks also as ever though, go out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs this time around for Sean Clifford. Victoria Parchment, Eileen Warby, Graham Reynolds, Lydia Pappas, Jenna Tomlinson, Susie D and Lucy Goodyear plus Dean Sanders, Robin Ward and Jennifer Trebon who have each edited their pledges and opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much all for doing that it's amazing and so kind of you to do so and it's so much appreciated. Now if you want to join these very kind folks and get yourself a full series worth of extra enthusiast tales such as New Year's Evil, The Final Straw, Death in Highgate Woods or Strange Tales from the South to name just a few of them then to do so is so easy the only way that you'd struggle to do it is if you had a head emptier than Amber Heard's piggy bank or in the personality vacuum that is a love island contestant i told you that those shy talks were in for some flack over the next few weeks i'm going to keep doing it as well it's simply the true crime enthusiast podcast over on the patreon site always remember that podcast suffix or you don't even really need to do that because the ever present clickable link to it is right in the episode show notes with my contact details as it is each and every time around As quick as a flash and for less than the price of a pint you can be hearing tales such as these I've mentioned and more and who knows there may even be some great show stuff winging its way to you. Well you might not think it's great but it is stuff. As this episode drops then we're on the literal eve of CrimeCon 2022 weekend down in London. I'm packed and primed and I'm off down there tomorrow to begin the festivities with some of my fellow show hosts. But if you have missed out on London this year, then fear not, because come September, CrimeCon returns, this time up in Glasgow. Now that promises to be as good an event as this one will be. I shall be up there for it alongside so many other hosts. There'll be talks and experiences galore, all sorts of things going on. And very kindly, the hosts have once again offered that by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST, you're getting yourself 10% off the cost of your tickets at checkout. How ace is that? Full details can be found on the CrimeCon website, or by using the link that you'll find in the episode show notes. I hope to see some of you there, I really do, I'm so looking forward to it. This time around then, there comes the first part of a two-part tale. There was just so much to research about it, that to do the tale itself, the background and those concerned, to do them justice, it is what it is. And which I shall begin, following a short word from the episode sponsors. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and in it, it's easy for many people to become burned out, often without them even knowing it. Perhaps even you, you know, that lack of motivation you may feel has crept up on you, or perhaps the reason you're constantly feeling tired, or you're irritable with everyone it seems. They're just some of the signs of it. Now, we can't help but associate burnout with work or working too hard, but that really isn't the only cause of it. Any of the roles we have in life can weigh on us and the relationships we each have in our lives take some work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need. It's helped me figure out exactly what was causing me stress. And should you feel this is something you may benefit from, then perhaps better help can help you. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. TCE. for this episode of the true crime enthusiast podcast and the next installment for as i said this is a two-part tale i'm bringing you here we're off back almost a decade to late 2012 and down to the city of cardiff in south wales my home nation's capital Cardiff, I'm sure, needs no introduction, really. I could go on about it for half the episode, probably. But I like the unusual bit of triv concerning the place, and I did find a couple of things here about it. It's the 11th largest UK city. It was the first fair trade capital in the world. It's the place to be whenever the Six Nations is on, or Wales are playing. It's produced from their bands and artists, such as Ivan Novello, gave his name to the awards, of course. Shirley Bassey, Underworld, super Furry animals, and the only man in history who can safely get away with double denim, Shakin Stevens, another famous city offspring include author Roald Dahl. I absolutely love him. Twit is one of my favorite books of all time. Former oasis guitarist Andy Bell, athletes Colin Jackson, and Paralympian Tanny Gray Thompson, TV presenter Lisa Rogers, who I used to have a bit of a thing for back in the day and British football history's most decorated player, but don't trust him with your other half, whatever you do, Ryan Giggs. My favourite stat this time around, though, is that in its Morgan Arcade, Cardiff is also home to the world's oldest record store, Spillers, which opened in 1894, selling wax records for the newly invented phonograph. I'm going to have to get myself down there for record store day sometime. Really am. It's to the Cardiff suburb of Ely, to the west of the city, we head for our tale this time around then, and back to October 2012. Ely, by the way, that's where Giggsy and Shakey grew up, is an area widely considered to be one of Cardiff's less desirable areas in terms of crime and standard of living, and has been ranked as one of the most deprived in South Wales, according to the Welsh Government deprivation data. But, Counterbalancing this with the fact it is a very large, close knit community, this is a reputation that the residents of Eli are keen to dispel. Now, I've never been there, but I had a good look all around it on Google Street View, as I do whenever I'm researching a place, and it looks pleasant enough there to me. I always find it a bit unfair to tarnish somewhere like this because there are pockets of everywhere that are rough. Bloody hell, where I'm from, if you pull up at traffic lights, then by the time they've gone green, you've been asked to join two gangs. And what you normally find is that most of the people in places such as these have much more of a sense of community, and though some may be rogues, most are generally salt of the earth, and they come together when required. A prime example of this sense of community, its spirit and its collective feeling was demonstrated in the aftermath of the terrible events that this time, and the next, I'm about to set out for you. If the tale seems to jump somewhat, it may veer from describing the scene to a recollection of it later, well, it's written deliberately like that. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, involving injury detail and involving children, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in or, Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the first part of a tale that I've entitled, Journey of Mayhem. The A48 Western Avenue, as the name suggests, to the west of the city, is one of Cardiff's major commuter routes, constantly chocker busy at any time with traffic in its multiple lanes, as well as pedestrians alike. And barring the odd and inevitable RTC that occur periodically on such a road, it's pretty unremarkable. It's just your bog-standard busy road. But at about 3.15pm on the afternoon of Friday the 19th of October 2012, alongside the commuters, some heading home after a Friday early finish from work, others having completed the final school run of the week, there came a terrifying sight that isn't all that familiar on our roads black renault clio 05 plate car being driven rather erratically which is a bit of an understatement really making its way along western avenue at a considerable speed having no regard for any speed cameras or white lines the vehicle made its way along western avenue often crossing dangerously between lanes and even mounting the grass verge at points during the journey leaving other drivers agape in its wake Now plenty of people drive like twats granted and what I've described here could be nothing different apart from one small detail. The Renault Clio was being driven like this on the wrong side of the road. Heading along Western Avenue towards the roundabout where the A48 junctions with the A4161, the Clio shot over the roundabout and continued on down the A48 Cowbridge Road West where after a minute or two, it turned sharply right and pulled into the car park of the road's West End Social Club, where the driver then killed the engine and sat in the car for a moment. The thoughts racing through the driver's mind that afternoon had soon told him that a Renault Clio just wouldn't suffice for what he was about to do. It was too small, it was too compact. No, he had something else in mind for his purpose. Something like the three-ton white Iveco van registration number hv52vud that he'd only recently purchased and that was parked in the car park of the social club that would suit the purpose much more he'd even been living out of it for the past few days he liked it because it was higher off the ground a court was to hear later locking his Clio then the driver headed over to the van and got inside it only a moment later to be confronted by a figure frantically running towards the van, and who upon arriving at it, slapped the palms of her hands against the bonnet, and standing in front of the vehicle, remonstrated with first, then pleaded for the driver to turn the ignition off, desperately trying to stop him driving away. The woman, the driver's ex-girlfriend, Lisa Davis, described later, He looked dreadful, it was almost as if he didn't see me he looked right through me. I know that person that did this wasn't the person I lived with for the last 17 months. The driver said nothing in response to Lisa's remonstrating and pleas, indeed, showed even no hint of recognition of her, and instead, starting the vehicle, caused her to physically jump out of the way as he sped off on his mission. It was now fast approaching 3.30pm, and now, at the wheel of his three-ton van, over the next 30 minutes, the driver was about to unleash a spree of horror that would leave so many people across the city scarred, both physically and mentally, and that would have emergency services stretched to the limit. At high speed, regardless of any such road safety behaviour or adherence to speed limits or traffic lights or anything like that, the white Aveco van tore from the social club car park and headed northeast onto the Cowbridge Road West, before only a moment later turning left into Crossways Road. Also on the road just then, making their way home after the final school run of the week, were 30 year old Amanda Morgan and her two children, nine year old Deroy and eight year old Keanu, whom she had just collected from Millbank Primary School and who were all three walking hand in hand on the pavement through the residential estate. Amanda recalled later, We walked a couple of steps past the van, and the next thing I remember is a pain in my back and the sound of impact. The driver had circled the van around after passing Amanda and her children, and without warning, had mounted the pavement and deliberately driven into them. Her two children, who at the time, as we said, were holding her hands, were ripped from her, she described later. She then saw her son Deroy lying screaming further along in the road, after being dragged along for some considerable feet by the van, having become trapped underneath it. The van then stopped, allowing his son to roll away, before it clipped his head as it drove off, missing rolling completely over it by inches. A resident of Crossways Road, Jess Alexander, had heard screaming and looked out of the window. Describing the scene later. I saw two little boys on the road outside my house. One little lad and his mum were screaming, the lad holding his arm, he was in obvious pain. The other little lad was in the recovery position, laying on the ground. The woman, who I'm presuming was their mum, sat on the ground comforting the lad with a broken arm. Police raced over on foot from the police station and it all got pretty chaotic. There were police everywhere helicopters, police bikes, the lot you just knew this was out of the ordinary when the ambulance arrived eventually they got the little boy into temporary splints on his legs neck and back and then they carried him off on a stretcher into the ambulance fortunately Amanda and Kiano had escaped with mere cuts and bruising Keanu requiring stitches to a head wound as well as cuts and bruising d meanwhile had suffered a badly broken arm Now that's horror enough already, isn't it, eh? Sadly, there was far worse to come. Moments after Amanda and her children had been struck, I'm back on Cowbridge Road West, near to the Eli Reptile Centre on the road, 24-year-old Adam Lewis, his partner, 22-year-old Anastasia Jones, and their two-year-old daughter Amelia May, were all three walking along the road, Adam and Anastasia pushing Amelia May along in her pushchair, enjoying the pleasant afternoon. Witnesses later described a three ton white Iveco van swerving across four lanes of busy traffic, mounting the curb, and ploughing into all three from behind. Anastasia, pushing Amelia May, took the main brunt of the impact, it throwing her forward and actually catapulting Amelia May out of her pushchair, though thankfully, She was caught and saved from more serious injury by a quick-thinking, horrified father. The driver then reversed and drove once again at the pushchair. Anastasia recalled later, I felt helpless as I lay on the floor as he drove directly at the pram, but fortunately he slowed down. Now the driver actually did strike the now empty pushchair again before speeding off. Though Adam had received only minor injuries in the collision, and Amelia May had bruising and scrapes to her face, Anastasia was left with a badly broken leg. As they and horrified onlookers immediately contacted the emergency services, these being just some of the 44 calls to the police that were received in the space of 30 minutes that afternoon, they watched the white Iveco van speed off back along Cowbridge Road West. Adam recalled, I saw the van coming in my peripheral vision, but it was too late to do anything. I got pushed from behind with a wing mirror, but unfortunately, my partner and my baby took the brunt of it. My baby was face down on the pavement and my partner was holding her leg. It was broken. When I heard about Karina, I thought, that could easily have been us. We're so lucky to be alive. His eyes filling with tears, he then went on. The person who did this to her and those poor children and all the other families should be given a death sentence for what he's done here. He's not fit to breathe the same air as us. Anastasia's aunt, Diane Quick, described later They were hit from behind by the van. Amelia was in the pram, but she has bruising. Anna has a broken leg and she's waiting for a scan. I've seen Karina coming in and out of school collecting her kids. People say how nice she was always happy and willing to help people i heard she was on her way from school from picking up the children it's horrendous the carina that diane and adam are describing here is 32 year old mother of three carina menses an eli resident well known and well liked in the area who had that afternoon just collected her middle child eight-year-old ellie from riverbank primary school having walked there together with her youngest child, 23-month-old Tiana. Karina's eldest daughter, Sophie, was at the time away on a dream holiday to Florida, a treat organised by the support group Sophie had at the time, for she suffers from a degenerative muscle disease, Charcut Marie Tooth, a group of inherited conditions that damaged the peripheral nerves, and that her mother too suffered from. A fun-loving and kind-hearted mum who lived for her children, the most common words to describe Carina that I found through researching include brave, loyal and devoted. Carina had known hardships in her life. Being a single mum of three can't be easy after all. And it has to be said, and I mean this not unkindly of course, that fate had been cruel to Carina over the years. Father Bruce had died of cancer a decade before. Her mother had eight years before been murdered by her then partner who strangled her in a fit of rage and following this Karina had become a surrogate mother figure to her brothers and sisters as a result. Now add to this the constant pain and discomfort that she felt through Charcot Marie Tooth. For a time Karina's life did go somewhat off the rails after such trauma understandably and she had issues with drug use but by 2012 she'd sorted her issues out and had gone back to being the fun-loving, popular person that she was. Having suffered so much loss and heartache at such a young age, it had strengthened Karina's resolve to be the best mum that she could be, and increased her devotion and care for her girls tenfold. If it meant that she had to go without so the girl didn't have to, then so be it. And Karina tried to do as much as she could with them. Trips to the play park, walks around the Eli area, making their own adventures, that kind of thing. The girls wanted for nothing and were always smartly turned out with a devoted mum each day taking and collecting her daughters from nearby Riverbank School. This Friday afternoon then, Karina, Ellie and Tiana were making their way back home along Cowbridge Road West and had just pulled level with the forecourt of Eli Fire Station when a white Iveco van veered at high speed across two lanes of traffic and aimed right at them. Karina saw the van coming, screamed, and with all of her strength, tried to push her children out of the way as it hurtled towards the pavement. Though she managed to move her children out of the main brunt of the impact, it still struck them, badly cutting the head of 8-year-old Ellie as she struck the floor. 2-year-old Tiana was more seriously injured, however, suffering a badly broken leg and a fractured pelvis from the brunt of the impact. Karina, meanwhile had taken the full force of the impact of the vehicle the crippling nerve conditions she suffered with preventing her from running or leaping out of the way it had hit her square on and she'd fallen beneath the van which horrifically then dragged her for between 25 and 30 meters along the forecourt of the fire station as she lay gravely injured on the floor the driver reversed up stopping short of connecting with the wall outside the fire station and then horrifically drove at the injured woman once again, this time dragging her along the floor for a second time a distance of up to 20 to 30 feet before speeding off. As firefighters raced out of the fire station and began tending to the badly injured woman, a passing BMW driver drove off chasing the departing van but was ultimately unable to stop it. An eyewitness, Stuart Bateman, described later There were two kids on the floor and a white van reversing. I was on the bus and I saw the van speeding off and there was a woman waving at the van trying to say stop. The van just straightened up and sped off out of the fire station. Behind her there was a woman on the floor and I believe that was the woman who died. People started shouting and many jumped out off the bus. I made a 999 call and informed police about which way the van drove off. When i got off i saw one quick response car already parked there which was helping the people on the ground another eli resident Haley jacobs witnessed the aftermath when taking his son home from school she said i noticed all the police and ambulance first they taped off the road in various parts some of it was absolutely manic and there was a paramedic working on someone on the ground there were just loads of ambulances and police cars and even two helicopters above it was all quite scary, we live near there and it's all places where I walk my children. Despite the efforts of firefighters and paramedics who'd arrived swiftly, sadly, karina Menzies was dead on arrival at the city's University Hospital of Wales. Her sister, Samantha Menzies, later described how she was at work when she got a phone call saying that her sister and two of her nieces had been involved in an accident. Her partner Lee told her nothing to suggest the extent of the tragedy that had unfolded, but Samantha recalled how she had a sense of something terrible and headed straight to hospital, desperate for news. She recalled later, I didn't see Karina at all. Then I went to the end of the corridor with Tiana because she had a scan to see if her internal organs were okay. I bumped into my partner on the end of the corridor and his face said it all. He didn't even have to speak. I knew she'd gone. So I burst into tears. Something in me snapped and from that point I just wanted to make sure the girls were okay and look after them, nurture them and help them through such a tough time. Samantha's first major task was how to break the news of their mother's death to the girls. She went on. The girls didn't find out their mother had died on the day. On the second day, we told Ellie because she was eight at the time but she's not a stupid girl. She knew something was up, so I said we had to tell her, and we had to tell her soon. Tiana was still in and out of consciousness. She was groggy because of the painkillers, so we wanted to make sure she was alert and aware of what was going on before we told her. Now, how do you tell children something such as that? Many years ago, I had the misfortune of breaking news of a sudden death to someone and I watched them just crumble in front of me. It was such a hard thing to do, I found, so I can barely imagine how that must have been for Samantha, and quite understandably, she admitted later that she could not physically bring herself to tell the girls. However, help was at hand. Samantha continued, I wanted them to find out in the best possible way, and I knew I would just be a blubbering mess if I told them. So the doctor said, I'll tell them if you want me to. It's horrible news, but he told it in the best possible way and I couldn't have asked for a better doctor to do it. He was brilliant. However, Karina's eldest daughter Sophie was, as we've said, away in Florida on a dream holiday and so knew nothing about the horrific events. Fortunately, the children on the trip had no access to television or social media and Sophie was told by the same doctor Surrounded by family in Cardiff. It can be but scant comfort to her or any of the girls or any of Karina's family that she died a heroine saving her girls. Indeed, they claim that she would have been uncomfortable with such a label. Karina's friend Julie Crook said later Karina saved her kids, but she couldn't run. She had CMT and it affected her hands and feet. She found it really hard to run. She was very unstable on her feet. She wouldn't have been able to run away. She would have just fallen if she tried. But she wouldn't have thought of herself as a hero for saving her children. Now whether she would or not, that is exactly what the tragic mum was. Exactly. Meanwhile, after colliding with Karina and her daughters the white Eveco van had sped off along Cowbridge Road West and had turned up into Eli's Grand Avenue, a dual carriageway in a large residential area. 32-year-old Renée Celio and her daughters, 10-year-old Jada and 12-year-old Cheyelle, had only moments before been into the sub-post office on the Grand Avenue Rower Shops, perusing the birthday cards there and shopping for groceries, the girls having just finished school for the week and Cheyenne meeting her mum and sister as she walked home that day. As they left the post office and began to cross the road on the zebra crossing outside the shops, a white van suddenly sped up and hit all three as they were crossing. Eli's sub-postmaster, Shadi Taha, who had moments before served all three, described later, All of a sudden I heard a bang, I looked out and across the road, one girl was lying there on the floor and the other girl was screaming. I heard a van speeding off but i didn't see it mr Tarha and his assistant phoned the emergency services and said it took a while for the ambulance to arrive he added simply now we know why fortunately by a sheer miracle all was still alive though Reni had suffered multiple injuries in the collision whilst 10 year old jada had suffered a broken arm and chayel minor injuries to her back By this time after police had been called to the first incident I described in Crossways Road a major incident had been declared for report after report came in of hit and run collisions in several locations in the west of the city. At the peak of a Friday afternoon police officers stopped the traffic on the city's busiest interchange to allow ambulances carrying the injured through to the accident and emergency department at the University Hospital of Wales which staff had by that time cleared of all patients, ready to deal with an emergency on an as-yet unknown scale. Sharon O'Brien, the hospital's lead nurse for unscheduled care, who managed the emergency unit's response during the events of October 19th, said that the true horror of that day became evident when the first children arrived in ambulances, describing later, I've worked in nursing for over 22 years, many of those in critical care and resuscitation. I haven't come across an event in my 22 years like that. For us, it was the stress of thinking, there are children involved, how many more children, how many more adults are there going to be? Oh my god, this man, how many more injuries are we going to see? As soon as a major incident had been declared, Sharon put into place well-practiced protocols that began with clearing existing patients into the next-door assessment unit. Within 10 minutes, the emergency unit was empty, with patients being moved into wards for further treatment and all incoming patients with non-emergency conditions not involved in the incident being diverted elsewhere. A nurse practitioner was placed on the front door of the hospital with a job of diverting walking wounded to the right place while doctors, surgeons, anaesthetists and nurses gathered in the emergency unit ready to get to work as soon as victims arrived. Three areas were set up to cater for those with life-threatening injuries with non-life-threatening injuries and for walking wounded. Only the area for those with life-threatening injuries was used and as the first victims arrived with their horrific injuries, doctors began working on them, while outside, the ambulances just kept on coming. Meanwhile, the terrified parents, siblings and children of the victims gathered in a room next to the emergency unit, unable to be at their loved ones' bedsides because of the sheer number of children being treated. Horror beyond belief, isn't it? The decision to call a major incident had been taken within seconds of the second hit and run. In Bridge End, officers gathered in the control room with representatives from organisations including the Ambulance and Fire Service, health boards and local authorities to launch a strategic gold command with overall control. At the same time, in Cardiff Bay, Tactical Response Coordinator Superintendent Belinda Davis described how officers were Literally running through the doors into a silver command room kitted out with maps, televisions, computers, phones, and screens showing CCTV from around the city, all poised to be used in a major incident, and which had captured each of the terrifying collisions as they happened. It was Superintendent Davis's job to pull in all of South Wales Police assets from around the force area patrol cars, roads policing units in unmarked cars and on motorcycles as well as detectives in the city's major crime unit, headed up by Detective Superintendent Paul Hurley. Now the force, of course, also still had to respond to all other 999 calls coming in, several of which were reporting the same horrors, and to clear space for ambulances ferrying the ever-increasing number of seriously injured victims to the University Hospital of Wales. As police responses began speeding through the city in an attempt to intercept and stop the van driver, the rampage continued and increasingly desperate calls from members of the public flooded in. So many were received that officers and staff at South Wales Police Headquarters even began hanging up on those who were calling to report what they already knew to ensure that only people with new information would be able to get through. The sheer number of police officers involved in the incident meant that a second base was immediately set up at Fairwater Police Station to take calls from off-duty officers and other emergency services workers ringing in to ask if they could help. Panic, meanwhile, spread through the west of the city as worried residents either phoned their loved ones or took to sending them messages on social media warning them to stay inside. For there was a madman loose. After driving onto Culverhurst Cross from Grand Avenue, the driver of the white Iveco van continued driving at high speed along the Cardiff Bay Link Road for some 5 miles towards the Leckwith Retail Park, where he pulled into the Asda petrol station forecourt there, colliding with a vehicle as he did so. Here, leaving the engine running, he got out of the vehicle armed with a crook lock with which he immediately began attacking three people who had come over to remonstrate with him about his speed and the collision. Lisa Carpin, Shah Kamruzan and Awata Singh. Each of them received minor injuries, before the driver then began striking the side of the vehicle he just collided with with the device, before climbing back inside the van. Inside this vehicle were 49-year-old Jill White, her mother Margaret, her 27-year-old daughter Rebecca, and her granddaughter, Francesca, who'd been out shopping together and who'd just stopped to fill the car up with fuel when the white van had pulled up next to them, colliding with their vehicle. Jill described later to BBC Radio Wales, Apparently, I came round the front of the car to look at the damage. I must have said to him, what do you think you're doing? And he put his foot down and drove straight at me. I went backwards and he'd knocked me straight unconscious. He then drove over my body. Apparently my daughter was screaming and running after him. He stopped because people were beeping their horns and trying to stop him from getting out of the garage. He reversed back, my body dropped and then he drove back over me again. In horrific footage that was caught on CCTV and mobile phone, Jill described how she was still under the van and being dragged out to the main junction as her daughter Rebecca chased after the van screaming my mother's underneath the van as horrified motorists beeped their horns and even tried to open their car doors on the driver to make him stop jill continued he stopped at the junction and my body dropped and my daughter thought i was dead she was on top of me seeing if i was alive screaming he then came back at the two of us and drove over the both of us then dragged both of our bodies a further 50 yards i think it was As well as the two women being severely injured, from inside the stationary vehicle, the trauma of witnessing the scene caused Margaret to suffer a heart attack, though fortunately a non-fatal one, as the van set off once again on its rampage, shooting through a red light, regardless of oncoming traffic. Witness Sarah Pryor told how she was lucky not to be hit by the van, saying in the aftermath, I drove off and then had the misfortune of seeing the two ladies who'd been knocked down in the Leckwith shopping centre. It was an awful sight. I had a small girl in the car. I had to distract her and point at something away. There was no ambulance yet, just people gathering around and making phone calls. I hope those women will be fine. Jill and Rebecca were far from fine, however. The wife of former NEATH MP Peter Hayne Dr Elizabeth Haywood was one of the customers at the Asda garage at the edge of the retail park and witnessed the whole event happen. She described to the BBC later. I was on my way home and I was filling up with petrol when I heard some shouts to my right. I saw an Asian man being hit with a crook lock by a white man on the forecourt, then a Sikh man in the car in front got out to intervene and stop the attack, but then he started to be beaten and had to flee. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and at first I thought this must be some kind of racist attack. But before anyone could do anything else, the man had jumped into his white van and left the petrol station. What happened next was truly horrifying. Right in front of my eyes, he ran over the woman. I could see her crushed under the wheels. He then reversed over her. It was utterly shocking. By then, a younger woman had come to help the older lady and somehow... She then ended up beneath the van too. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but both women were then dragged under the wheels of the van for a distance before they were left lying in the road. I have never seen injuries so horrendous in my life and I never want to see anything like that ever again. I called the ambulance and several people went over to try and help them, but they were very badly injured. The whole incident must have lasted less than five minutes, but it felt like hours. But the driver didn't look angry, if anything, he looked like he was drugged, he was not in a frenzy, he was calm and deliberate. He looked like he was simply annoyed that these people were in his way, and he was methodically attacking them to rid them from his presence. The strange thing was, he wasn't saying anything, he was deadly silent as he went about his business, it was like he was grumpy someone had gotten in his way, and he was lashing out like a child almost. Now I doubt that you'd need any assistance to visualise such horror but take this into account. Forensic examinations of the scene and the petrol station forecourt were later to find a 48 metre long drag mark on the road that consisted of what was described as blood and body tissue whilst another mark, one that was 54 metres long ended in a pool of blood. 54 metres. You can't even begin to imagine such horror, can you? Fortunately, although both women were very seriously injured, incredibly, both survived, although both did spend weeks in hospital and suffered very serious injuries, the scars of which they will carry with them for life. Jill alone underwent some 13 operations, including receiving several skin grafts and 14 months after the incident, was still confined to a wheelchair. Thankfully, however, Jill White and Rebecca were the last people to be injured before police managed to stop and arrest the driver. Throughout the described rampage, officers had been attempting to intercept the driver and finally caught up with him at traffic lights at Barron's Court on the Penarth Road. In dramatic footage that was captured on traffic cam, and that if you head to the episode show notes, a link for you to watch for yourselves is included, Police Constable Dean Hayworth placed his response vehicle directly in front of the white van to try and prevent it going any further. Whilst the driver had accelerated and drove straight at the vehicle, attempting to push through, the van had momentarily stopped, allowing PC Hayworth to get out of the vehicle and in full-on TJ Hooker mode, get across the bonnet and attempt to climb onto the bonnet of the van only for the driver to hit his car again and this time managing to push through screaming across four lanes of traffic and driving off along the A4055 Barry Road to Thlando, hotly pursued by several patrol cars from South Wales Roads Policing Unit Again in dramatic dashcam footage One of these vehicles, a patrol car containing police constables Andrew Simmons and Gary Giles, is then shown fishtailing the white van, causing the rear of the vehicle to swing around in an uncontrolled way whilst moving by nudging the rear passenger side of it, and so it loses acceleration. On the approach to the Merry Harrier pub along the Barry Road, the white van is then shown to spin counterclockwise before coming to a stop on the left-hand side of the carriageway. As other response vehicles screeched to a halt, the driver was out of the van and again, armed with a crook lock, began swinging it at the officers converging on him, injuring PC John Bryan as he struck him in the face with it. In response to this, another officer sprayed the driver with CS gas, causing him to drop the crook lock and allowing the other converging officers to restrain and arrest him. The time was then 15.57. In 29 minutes, meaning that police were still getting calls about new casualties as their roads policing officers were chasing the driver across the city, within this journey of mayhem that had covered some eight miles, the driver of the white Iveco van had struck and injured 17 people. Amazingly, yet tragically, just one of them fatally. The windscreen in front of the van was testament to the devastation he'd just caused. The windscreen was shattered and the front of the white van smeared with blood each of the officers involved in the on the street response to the major incident that day were later commended for their actions presented with the outstanding contribution to Rhodes Policing Award at the following year's National Roads Policing Conference with the driver of the vehicle which had forced the van off the road PC Andrew Simmons describing it later as a dynamic incident which unfolded at an alarming rate he added there was a duty that needed to be done this man had done something and we needed to intervene later on the evening of october the 19th then with the van driver securely in custody the critical incident was downgraded although on duty officers and staff remained working through the weekend helping carry out forensic investigations on the assorted crime scenes which started out as six which rapidly became 26 plus helping the traumatized and grieving families and of course questioning the driver himself it was to be the following day saturday the 20th of october before several of the scenes including crossways road the asda supermarket petrol station at leckwith and Cogan spur and the a4160 penarth road in clando were reopened ahead of a press conference in which Detective Superintendent Paul Hurley described the horrific incidents and detailed the arrest of the suspect to the gathered media. In all, South Wales Police said there'd been some 44 emergency calls in those 29 minutes asking for police and ambulance and the team of 70 officers working on the inquiry had already taken more than 100 eyewitness statements from shocked residents. By that time also, ahead of the press conference, the number of casualties had been amended to 14, one person dead and 13 people injured, including 7 children. And Detective Superintendent Hurley added that his team were hopeful that some of the injured would be released from hospital over the weekend. Meanwhile, a sense of shock, disbelief and horror had begun to settle across not just the Cardiff area, but the whole country shocked and saddened by such devastation and struggling to make sense of what had happened in the immediate aftermath of the rampage eli community reverend jan gold had opened up the church of the resurrection on grand avenue to help offer comfort to members of the community and describing the scenes she said shortly after the incident it was the most horrendous incident it equates very much to a shooting I was walking down Cowbridge Road and it seemed very much like that. We were open until about 11.30 last night and we had a steady trickle of people just wanting to sit, light a candle or to try and make sense of what had just happened. How could you even begin to try though? By that Saturday morning, a steady stream of people had begun bringing flowers to lay by the fire station where tragic Karina Menzies had been fatally injured. An American college jacket, a tribute to a style Karina had loved, had also been hung there in tribute by one such visitor, not all of the many even knowing Karina, but just wanting to show that they cared. One of these was 26-year-old Peter Hale, who had known her, and who described the feeling and disbelief that the Eli community felt, saying, She was always smiling when I saw her. It was only two days ago I saw her walk past here with her two children. I think she had three children altogether, but only two were with her. You see things like this on TV all the time happening in different places, but you don't expect it to happen on your own doorstep, especially when it's people you know. We're a family in Eli, and everyone will come together and push on, hopefully. Resident Amanda Davis was another who also came to the fire station along with her family to lay flowers. She said, I was devastated. Something like this doesn't happen in Eli, I only live around the corner. People were sending messages saying, don't go outside your house because people are being run over by Eli Fire Station. And yet another resident who'd known Karina, Margaret Penfold, was in tears talking about the previous day's events. Expressing grief as well as relief, saying, it's just tragic, she was a lovely girl, you couldn't ask for a better person. I feel for the poor people who've lost everything. There are innocent children that have been hurt. It could have been my children. They're 12 and 13 and were coming home from school and I didn't know what to do. I was going to go out on the road looking for them, but then they came up the road. The relief on my face was unbelievable. Now I hope that that isn't taken by anyone for her to seem callous and blinkered, because of course it isn't meant like that it's completely understandable that in the aftermath of such random and widespread horror, the relief that those dearest to you are okay and unscathed, it must be immeasurable, mustn't it? And what of the perpetrator of such carnage, at the same moment sat in custody in a South Wales police cell? Well, we shall find out all about him and his motives in the second and concluding part of Journey of Mayhem because that's a perfect place to leave our tale for the time being. There is much more to come with this one, that I'm sure will shock, it will anger some, perhaps even bring you to tears. It's one of the most tragic tales that I've come across in several years, this one is, and there was so much to research concerning it, that it would simply have been too big for a standalone episode. So the next time around, I shall bring you the rest, and save any kind of my usual wrap up and thoughts concerning the case for then. Now, the next episode may be a day or two later than usual coming also, because I'm away at CrimeCon, Con slap bang in the middle of both parts. And of course, nothing goes out until it's the best that I can do that's going out. But I will endeavour to bring it to you as soon as I can. I'll work harder than Amber Heard's scheme in mind to do so. Until then, All that remains is for me to pass on my heartfelt thanks to you all for joining me and Pixie today for the tale, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.